So, Rachel, I was thinking about Marvel Team-Up. The X-Men and Spider-Man go back pretty far, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, by the time the annual we're talking about today came out, Spidey had even been palling around with Iceman and Firestar for a couple years on TV. But really, I mean, he and the X-Men go back as far as the Silver Age. They do? Oh, yeah. They first cross over in X-Men 27 when Spider-Man randomly stops a bank robbery just ahead of Iceman and Beast. They asked him to join the team, but he turned them down. Because he wasn't a mutant. Because he thought he was destined to be alone. Huh. And then later in X-Men 35, they spent most of the issue trying to kill each other. What? Why? Well, see, Peter Parker was riding his bike through Westchester. Coincidentally? Yeah, it's nice and fall. Anyway, he got attacked by robots. Of course he did. Right, so he changed to Spider-Man, took out the bots, and promptly got jumped by the X-Men. Why? Well, see, Banshee had sent them a psychic warning earlier that day to beware the spider. Why did Banshee want them to beware Spider-Man? He's a stand-up guy. Oh, no, no, he wasn't talking about Spider-Man. He was talking about these spider robots and flying saucers who were working for Factor 3. What?! Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 39th episode of Rachel and Miles' Explain the X-Men, a weekly podcast where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. And huzzah, the holidays are over. They were awesome, but exhausting. And now we never have to celebrate them again. Is that how that works? Pretty much. And you're back. I like Chris, but... I missed you. Oh, well, thank you. I missed you, too. I was on a mountain. There were no Rachels on the mountain, and no X-Men that I know of. We explained Arcade. Yeah, I I heard. It sounded pretty awesome. Arcade is bizarre and ridiculous, and I was kind of sad to not be there, but you and Chris did an awesome job. We also missed your Doom voice. It's really not a Doctor Doom moment without you. All foolish mortals miss my Doom voice. Or better yet, all foolish mortals miss Doom's Doom voice. Correct. So now that you and your Doom voice are back, what are we going to look at today? Okay, so this time we're going to look at the next adventure of the New Mutants. So this is post-Demon Bear Saga and post-Meeting Lila Cheney. And uh, we're going to see a lot about Cloak and Dagger as well. And Doom? Sadly, no. We can assume he's watching this on a monitor somewhere because that's his style, but that's probably about it. So it's been a few weeks since we checked in with these guys. Let's take a quick look back at the status quo, who's on the team, what they've been up to. First of all, we have the two sort of co-leaders of the team, and those are Daniel Moonstar and Sam Guthrie. Danny is currently going by Mirage. She's also gone by Psyche and briefly Spellbinder. And she's still recovering from the injuries she suffered during the Demon Bear saga. But she does have parents now, so, you know, bonus. Yeah, they're not a bear anymore. Uh, Spoilers if you haven't read it or listened to that episode for some reason. And Cannonball now has a lady friend who is, again, intergalactic thief and rock star Lila Cheney. I mean, Rachel, you're pretty great, but you're no Lila Cheney. Oh, dude, I would would leave you for Lila Cheney in a heartbeat. We would both leave each other for Lila Cheney. We're cool with this. This is basically the foundation of our relationship. We have similar values. This was in our vows, actually. Absolutely. We also have, of course, Roberto da Costa, Sunspot. Who is, alas, totally not doing it with anyone, to his eternal consternation. And Rain Sinclair. She is Wolfsbane. She can turn into a wolf. She is the youngest member of the team, and she has really mixed feelings about being there. She was raised in a very, very secluded, ultra-religious cult, and told for most of her life that she was a demon. And trying to adjust to a life in modern society with a bunch of comrades who include, among other things, an actual demon sorceress has been a little rough for her. And it's, it's only going to get worse over this arc. And speaking of that demon sorceress, that is Ilyana Rasputin, Colossus's kid sister, who is a teleporter who also uh, went through hell and back, literally, as a kid. And she is going by magic these days, and as of the Demon Bear Saga, she's officially one of the new mutants. We've also got Amara Aquila, it's Magma. She basically grew up in a very, very dedicated chapter of the SCA. And she's sort of going to be Sir not appearing in this film, in this arc. She doesn't really show up too much. Also not really appearing in this arc are the two newest members of the team, my two favorites, who are Doug Ramsey, Cypher, he is good with languages, and Warlock, who is a techno organic space teenager. 
Okay, so with that, let's talk about what happens in this arc. So we're jumping in with New Mutants number 22. It's going to be so hard for all of New Mutants to not just go into extended reveries about Sienkiewicz's art because it's so good and it's still so good. We talked most about that in the Demon Bear Saga, the previous New Mutants episode we did, which is incredible. And I do want to stress that even though we're not going to talk about the art as much going forward, because like you just said, Rachel, we would never shut up about it, basically, the art does stay that incredible. It does stay that striking and Sienkiewicz remains a stellar, perfect fit for this book. Well, what really strikes me moving forward is, I mean, the Demon Bear is deep weird. It's kind of prime Sienkiewicz. He's going in very different directions from there out. You don't, it might get that weird again, but he's doing much more conventional storytelling and stories and really getting a chance to show not only how far he can go, but his breadth as a storyteller, which is really significant. You see that sort of signature mix of realism and surreality, that sort of exaggerated cartooniness on top of a great deal of detail, a great deal of very believable detail. And we definitely see that a couple times in this arc, just with random characters. Like, at one point, uh, Harry, who runs Harry's Hideaway, which is the bar near the X-Mansion that all the characters go to, uh, he shows up, and he's like this very large, cartoonish man who also looks totally like a real person. Like, both of those things work at the same time. It's awesome. But for now, we open up in the X-Mansion. We've talked about those little reset moments at the beginning of arcs where we get introduced to all the characters, and that's exactly what we see here. We open, actually, with a character who is not one of the New Mutants. We open with this really fantastic anticipatory page of Nightcrawler getting ready to do some rad trapeze tricks. Yeah, and I love that we don't really see him in full form. We just see, like, his feet or his hands or his tail. It feels like it's going to lead into, like, the opening number of a Broadway musical, which, if it did, that would be a very different story. But it feels that way. But what Nightcrawler is specifically doing is trying to teach Sam to get a little bit better about changing direction midair. Because Sam Guthrie is cannonball. He's basically a rocket dude. He can fly really fast and really hard, but basically in one direction. I think he successfully turned mid-flight once or twice. He was so proud. But yeah, he's having a really hard time learning how to maneuver. And yeah, I mean, he feels responsible for the team. He's one of the co-leaders. He's also one of the oldest members of the team. It's like a perpetual source of almost shame and embarrassment for him that while everybody else is progressing so quickly and mastering their powers, he's not. He feels like he's getting left behind. And once again, everything in New Mutants is a metaphor for adolescence. Everything. Well, everything that's not just adolescence. Uh, Right. It either is adolescence or is a metaphor for adolescence. And speaking of metaphors for adolescence and awkwardnesses in adolescence, someone has come to wish him luck. And that is Rain, Wolfsbane. She uh, comes to watch, and there's this great little scene, uh, Sinkevich style, of her blowing a kiss to Sam, which is a little heart in a circle with a line extending from her mouth to the next panel, which is his face. And it's adorable. Rain has a crush on Sam. I mean, New Mutants has always been very teenage soap opera. When it's doing it right, it especially is. And so he's like, hey, oh, yay, that's sweet. And now I feel scared and embarrassed about whether I'm going to screw this up. Now, Rain really likes Sam, but she really, really dislikes Nightcrawler. She is terrified of him. I mean, he looks like a traditional Judeo-Christian demon, and given her background, she cannot get past that. Yeah, and so after the training session, when all of a sudden Rain finds herself through the Danger Room's tech turned into a clown and another clown in front of her asking her to dance, she thinks it's Sam. She thinks it's charming. The image uh, inducer tech turns off, and in fact, it's Nightcrawler who was trying to teach her not to judge people by appearances. Well, or was just trying to be fun and do something to make her more at ease because she was freaked out. And it's kind of obviously Nightcrawler. I mean, he doesn't talk like Sam. Yeah, well, Rain is naive and easily overwhelmed, so I can see her being a little in over her head here. Well, and Rain is also just really, really, really struggling with her own identity. Um, That's something that we've seen from her first appearance, but that's gotten worse and worse and worse throughout New Mutants. 
And part of that is the fact that she's realizing that in some ways she really likes being in her wolf form more than in her human form because everything is just, it's simpler, it's more straightforward, it's more primal. And so for somebody who's so much in her head, who's so much surrounded by guilt and shame and fear, it's a really nice change of pace. And that makes her feel even worse about the whole thing. It's interesting seeing her talk to Nightcrawler. This is a relationship and a friendship that I don't remember seeing very much of, which is a shame because Nightcrawler is a really devout Catholic. And I feel like the conversations they could have and that could come out of this could be really fascinating. But he's challenging this idea, and she says, and I'm not even going to try to do the accent. That's not true. It can't be. If you're not a demon, then all I've been taught since I was born, perhaps even the good book itself, is false. And that seems kind of like an overreaction until you remember how much the jerk priest dude who raised her basically said, you look like a demon, therefore you are sin incarnate. And so to see, you know, even the slightest bit of this far extreme Catholic dogma be perhaps disproved, it's a big shock for her and really plays into all the doubts that are going on in her mind right now. If these things aren't terrible, if they aren't fundamentally flawed and sinful and awful, then it means that she has to or has the potential to engage with them in a way that she's entirely cut herself off from otherwise. And this is an area where just how young some of these characters are really comes in. I mean, Rain is, I think, 13 or 14 at this point, And, you know, that's hard enough without having to deal with everything she is. So Rain runs off and she runs past Sunspot and Colossus. And Sunspot is also not in a great place right now for more ambiguous reasons. And he is, while he's sparring with Colossus, in his Sunspot form, just manifests these weird claws for a second and really actually hurts Colossus. That's not initially addressed. Colossus doesn't really know what happened. Sunspot doesn't know what happened. A little bit of foreshadowing, perhaps. Meanwhile, in the laboratories, Professor Xavier and Dr. McTaggart are trying to figure out exactly what makes Warlock tick. Yes, and as it turns out, it is whimsy and a techno-organic virus. Those are the things that make Warlock tick. Mostly whimsy. And yeah, Moira McTaggart, who uh, also, as you may remember, is Rain's kind of guardian. She helped raise her in Scotland. She's come to the United States to help Professor Xavier, and I always like seeing them work together. I mean, they're former lovers, yes, but they're also just good friends and incredibly effective scientific colleagues. Yeah, if you ignore Deadly Genesis, basically, and God, how many of my sentences start that way. That was in our vows too, actually. We do not acknowledge Gabriel Summers. (laughs) (laughs) In sickness and in health, there is no Vulcan. (laughs) No, but if you ignore Deadly Genesis and that retcon, they're really good exes. Like, they are people who did not work as a romantic couple who were together for a pretty long time, I think, who are much, much better as friends and colleagues and have kind of figured that out. After that, the last of our character sort of intro montage is Danielle Moonstar, who's on the phone with her parents, who it turns out now are in fact alive, even though she thought for a long time they were dead. Also, no longer a bear because that would make the phone call difficult. Right. Oh, hey, mom, dad, how are you? (laughs) We see Rain sort of running past all of these, trying to find somebody to talk to and just not really doing that. And it's like, man, oh, poor kid. So at this point, we cut to... The Hellfire Club. This is a thing I kind of want to talk about because there are two B-plots running through, or I guess a B and a C-plot running through the story, and I don't really get why either of them are here because they've got no real connection to New Mutants. I guess the B-plot kind of does because it's Selene and she's mostly a New Mutants villain. And that's something that I think Chris Claremont was really doing at this point since he was writing both books, is he was treating them, you know, yes, they each focused on different characters primarily, although we are seeing more and more overlap between the books in terms of characters, but he was also just using them as kind of the X-universe, and so if something needed to happen in the X universe, it almost became arbitrary to Claremont which book it showed up in. And you know, that's the thing about the Claremont long game is we've talked about it really positively in the past, but 
in the short term, it mostly feels like a lot of tangents and irrelevant digressions, or it can. If you were reading the books, like, you know, issue by issue, like, okay, here's X-Men for June, here's New Mutants for June, here's X-Men for July, here's New Mutants for July, then that's really not a big deal because it does feel like a cohesive experience. And that's certainly something we see happening in the current X-Universe with Brian Bendis' books. The thing is, these aren't really integrated narratives. Like, again, the Hellfire Club plot is a little bit more just, but it's nothing really happens. I mean, it's just literally all that's established is, okay, Celine and Bobby DaCosta's father get initiated into the Hellfire Club and Sebastian Shaw doesn't really like or trust Celine. The end. It's a pretty strong echo of something we've already seen in Uncanny X-Men and in fact could be seen as being slightly contradictory since... In Uncanny X-Men, we see Celine basically having her resume being beating the hell out of his guards and almost killing Sebastian Shaw. I have to say, though, I do really like Sienkiewicz's super punk Hellfire Club. Like, instead of fake Victorian and 18th century bondage gear, they're all just like super glam punk. And I am really into that. Yeah, well, the thing is, they aren't all. Like, Emmanuel DaCosta is wearing that sort of archaic formal wear. And then we have, you know, Celine looking like she could be fronting the Heartbreakers. I like the idea of that being a super mean girls thing. Oh, did no one tell you that we were doing glam today? <laughs> I just I just dress like this, okay? I, I didn't try to dress up for anything. I just dress like this all the time. So Celine aside, we cut back to the New Mutants and Rain, who is outside by the pool, and she is doing what the X-Men do to process their issues, which is writing an allegorical fairy tale. You know fairy tale therapy. It was big in the 80s, right next to Primal Scream therapy before Was that. it? I bet there was some kind of real thing that was like that. I don't know. If there are any people who were fairy tale therapists in the 80s, comment on one of our posts. Oh We'd love God. to hear about it. Anyway, so Rain's fairy tale is adorable. Rain is such a Disney princess. She is, and so she has this sort of analog for herself, who is, of course, the Princess Alistrea. You can see her page of notes before it goes into the fairy tale proper about, like, proper princess names and things. She's in a cottage in the woods with her talking animal friends. They're all singing, and it's idyllic, and it's very specifically sort of little girl idyllic. Yeah, so her beloved prince dude sort of stumbles in, who's, like, possessed and ensorcelled, and just before he collapses, tells her that the sorceress has done this. So she goes and she heads to what is described as the place she feared the most, the city, which is this sort of demonically anthropomorphized New York. But like a modern New York City. So one of the creatures she runs into is this very Sienkiewiczized living talking taxi cab, which is kind of like that taxi from Roger Rabbit from hell. And there in the city, she finds the two people responsible for her prince's condition, the Black Baron and the Sorceress. And if you have read much Marvel comics at this point, you'll recognize these guys immediately because they are a very close analog to two characters named Cloak and Dagger. So let's talk a little bit about Cloak and Dagger. They're characters who have been around in the Marvel Universe for a little while up until this point, and in fact, they've already met the New Mutants, which we'll get to momentarily. They were created by Bill Mantlo, who we've mentioned a number of times. He also was the person who was behind the comics for the Micronauts and for Rom Space Knight. He created the character Rocket Raccoon. And I want to mention again, it's kind of the opposite of the drinking game, but I feel like I want to be pretty regularly, especially during this era, linking to both the Hero Initiative and the fund for his ongoing care. And actually, another creator who designed the looks of the characters, who is named Ed Hannigan, the Hero Initiative has worked with him before as well. He's got MS, and so he's needed some assistance with that. Comics creators, especially from a while back, really were not always treated very well by the companies they worked for. Even modern comics has pretty much no safety net. The extent to which I feel like most comics professionals, especially comics freelancers and creators, are are kind of one disaster away from disaster is more visible now than it used to be, but is something that's been the status quo for a very long time and becomes particularly evident as creators get older and develop health problems. Yeah, totally. So anyway, yes, Bill Mantlo, he claims that that Cloak and Dagger came to him in this, this sort of burst when he was visiting Ellis Island. He says, 
They came in the night when all was silent and my mind was blank. They came completely conceived as to their powers and attributes, their origin and motivation. They embodied between them all the fear and misery, hunger and longing that had haunted me on Ellis Island. You know, what's ironic about this is that's super poetic and it's super evocative. The actual Cloak and Dagger comics kind of aren't. Yeah, I mean, I really like the concept behind Cloak and Dagger and I love the looks. I love them in general, but the comics that they're in aren't always so hot. They don't always really get across that passion and that fervor. So let's talk a little bit about the actual concepts behind them. They're a pair of runaways, right? They're two runaways named Tyrone Johnson and Tandy Bowen. Tyrone was a poor teenager who uh, left his hometown. He escaped the sort of violent streets there and headed to New York City. And Tandy is coming from a position of a whole lot of privilege. She's really rich. Um, She's escaping basically a disconnected family. They both ran away to New York and they were taken in by drug pushers who were testing a newly developed strain of synthetic heroin on runaways because, God, they're, they're such a very special episode. When they were in comics, often that was the world that they were dealing with. They were basically, go- they were vigilantes who were going after these adults who preyed on the vulnerable, who preyed on teenagers and children. There's a lot of very, very thinly veiled, like, child prostitution and stuff in those comics. Also, I, I think we should point out that race is a big part of it as well. Um, Tyrone is black and Tandy is white. Tyrone comes from a poorer background, Tandy comes from a richer background, and that's not accidental. Those were social aspects of the world that the comic very deliberately addressed. Yeah, speaking of social aspects and modern relevance, it's also worth pointing out part of Tyrone's origin story is that his best friend is murdered by the police. The two of them are at a convenience store, which is robbed, and the police assume that it's their fault because there are a couple of poor black kids who are there and just straight up shoot his friend. Yeah, and Tyrone, who stutters, is not able to tell the police what's going on in time, so he blames himself for this. It's, it's really genuinely tragic. Now, as far as Cloak and Dagger as superheroes, so like you said, Rachel, they survived this experimental heroin. Experimental synthetic heroin, and it killed everyone else they tested. It killed like hundreds of kids, and these two were the only survivors well, that came out with superpowers. Dozens, yeah. But yeah, they did in fact come out with superpowers, and Tyrone becomes Cloak. He's got these sort of darkness-based powers. His body is this dark void, and he can draw people into it and kind of send this to this, this dark dimension. So what you're telling me is that he's a weaponized bag of holding. In fact, that is exactly what I'm telling you, yes. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got he's got this iconic blue and black cloak and I think a lot of people assume that his powers are from the cloak. No, in fact, that's just something to kind of border his, the weird void that is his physicality. It's curtains, right? Like, uh, it's, it's just yeah. curtains that he grabbed and wrapped around himself because he was freaked out by his powers. When his powers first manifest, he just grabs them off like a pile of boxes in an alley. That raises some questions, the first of which is, what kind of fabric has the tensile strength to contain the void? Are they Doctor Strange's curtains? It's like a tablecloth. It's like putting a tablecloth on the void. They shared a book with Doctor Strange for a while. Maybe they got the curtains from him. And anyway, the other character, Dagger, she's sort of the inverse of that. Her powers are all light-based. She has this boundless, radiant perfection that kind of comes from within her, and she can project it outward as these little beams, these sort of needles of light that she refers to as daggers, hence the name, I guess. She also has a really deeply dubious costume featuring something that is simultaneously an improbable boob cutout and a crotch arrow. I realize that part of the fun of comic book costumes is that they don't actually have to be doable with real materials. Like, they just have to look cool drawn. But man, the logistics of that cutout just baffle me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually really liked when they showed up in The Runaways. I don't recall the name of the artist, but they did a much more reasonable uh, version of Dagger's outfit. You can make it look really cool, but I get all obnoxious and Joan Riversy about this shit, which I entirely blame on years doing commentary for Project Rooftop, which you should check out if you haven't. It's awesome. It's superhero costume redesigns. But the decision to make superhero costumes with an arrow pointing directly at someone's crotch is one that I can really never back. Behold! <laughs> Um, But yeah, so Cloak and Dagger, and you know, they had a long and storied history in the Marvel Universe. They're still around. I think they were most recently in the Spider Island crossover. Spider Island? uh, It's a long story. Spider Island. 
But anyway, they had their own uh, book for a while. Like you mentioned, Rachel, that book was briefly a sort of two-in-one with Doctor Strange. The concept of the book changed periodically. It was kind of like Dazzler in that regard, where sales started out strong. And then over time, they started to drop. And so the book tried different directions to bring those sales back up. So at one point, for instance, Dagger spent an entire run of the series blind. And apparently, like, the writer who wrote that part of the series did a lot of research to make that a realistic story beat. The thing about Cloak and Dagger that always gets me is that they're so committed to being miserable. You see this in Dark X-Men and the Utopia stuff, too. They see themselves as having absolutely no agency and always needing to be alone. And they keep on getting invitations to, like, stay around and join teams and get more support. And they're just like, no, we have to be alone. They're like really silly Batman. Like silly Batman who's not rich and doesn't actually have an infrastructure and support system. Because the thing with Batman is he doesn't really work alone. He works with the sum of Wayne Industries behind him and Alfred and whatever like 70 sidekicks he has at a time. Batman does not exist in a vacuum and he can't exist in a vacuum. I have have fairly strong feelings about Batman on this front. (laughs) So you do. But yeah, so Cloak and Dagger, they, like we said, had met the New Mutants before, and that was in Marvel Team-Up Annual number 6, I would say a couple of years beforehand. So Marvel Team-Up was a series that ran for 150 issues, 141 of which starred Spider-Man, and it was basically Spider-Man teams up with someone cool whose monthly comic you should then start to buy. So this one's written by Bill Mantlo, and it's drawn by Ron Friends and Kevin Zuban. And the most important thing about this Marvel Team-Up is not what it does to the plot, it's the fact that it's where we learn that Bobby DaCosta, in addition to his previous cultural passions which we have encountered, namely Magnum P.I. and Wolverine, is really fucking into the musical Cats. He has brought his friends all out to see it with him at the Lincoln Center. And it's kind of adorable. Rain's all, like, horrified. Like, why are they showing their bodies off like that? You know, isn't that sinful? And all writhing around and shit. And Bobby's like, no, no, it's awesome. Everything's awesome. The music is awesome. You know, he's talking about its great scope and drama. And the thing is, like, I realize Cats was a cultural sensation, but it's kind of not very good. Oh man, you just like alienated a third of our listeners. It's no, it's fun and it's cute. It's just, I don't, I don't like Cats. But Bobby DaCosta does. Bobby DaCosta does. And Bobby DaCosta's enthusiasm for Cats is, is enough to carry me through. I, I believe in Bobby DaCosta. Bobby DaCosta believes in Cats and that's enough for me. <laughs> well, anyway, Cloak and Dagger are hunting down the people who have been killing all of these teenagers on the streets. They meet up with Spider-Man while they're doing so. Well, Spider-Man thinks he's investigating a car theft ring until they find a bunch of dead teenagers in a back room. And Cloak and Dagger show up because, you know, that's who shows up when there are a bunch of random dead teenagers. God, I made that sound much worse than it actually is. It's true. You do. So the New Mutants, as they get out of Cats, they head to an arcade and get kind of jumped by some jerks who are there who end up picking a fight with them, um, which becomes severe enough that they start using their powers and kidnapping Rain and Roberto. Now, before that happens, Danny uses her power to call up the greatest fear of these hoodlums, who, as it turns out, is Cloak and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger run off. They ditch Spider-Man. They head to Holy Ghost Church, which is at this point their primary hideout. We've seen this in like the Cloak and Dagger miniseries that it becomes their base of operations. And there's this increasingly harried priest that runs the place like, oh, God, these guys again. And once again, Father Francis Xavier Delgado wonders why he continues to harbor these two in his church. It's like, geez, you never take your shoes off before you come in. You're not even looking for a job. Come on. I don't know why, but I'm imagining them becoming just increasingly cartoonishly awful, like feral goats running around. Like, they chew on all the draperies. <laughs> they wake him up at four in the morning. Daddy, play with us. Daddy, play with us. We want to watch cartoons. <laughs> so that doesn't actually happen in any of the comics, except in our hearts. So anyway, <laughs> the New Mutants end up showing up as well, and all of them agree that the most likely thing going on because (laughs) is that the bad guys are trying to replicate cloaks and daggers powers 
using Rain and Bobby because for some reason they want to try them out on mutants. Well, I mean, I think the idea is that since so many of the people they tested these drugs out on the first time around died, that there must have been something special about Cloak and Dagger. So if they find other teenagers, I don't know why teenagers, but teenagers uh, who have something special about them, maybe they'll survive the experience. No, that's totally not it, because the evil scientist explains this to Rain and Bobby when they're tied up on a butcher block in a meatpacking plant. He also thinks that Rain's enhanced senses are what tell her that they're in a meatpacking plant, despite the fact that there are like slabs of meat hanging from the ceiling all around them and they're tied to a butcher block. Oh, those slabs of meat could be anything. So what he says specifically is if we can recreate the effects of that drug, we can assemble an army of junkie mutants who would need our drug and would do anything we told them to. And there are some flaws with this plan, the first of which is that the drug they've created isn't actually addictive. I guess, yeah, that's true. When they give it to Cloak and Dagger way back in Cloak and Dagger's origin, I mean, they have some major problems now. They have these weird powers they can't control, but they're not, like, jonesing for more of the drug. Yeah, it either kills people or gives them superpowers. That's pretty much what it does. Well, mob science is special science, apparently. No, you know what? This is ridiculous. Like, why aren't they just finding superpowered kids and getting them addicted to heroin? They could do that. I think this is, uh, you got a point, this is kind of like Alexander Von Doom levels of questionable. Anyway, it all comes together as the heroes do find where Bobby and Rain are being held. There's a big fight, but Bobby and Rain are, in fact, injected with this drug and go into sort of, like, super messed up forms of their existing transformed forms. No, they just kind of both go into super messed up transformed forms of Rain's form. Like, Bobby turns into a giant werewolf monster, too. So Rain bites both of them, and somehow that sends both Cloak and Dagger, that somehow sends their powers haywire as well. Yeah, Cloak ends up taking... Bobby inside his cape at the same time and absorbing the drug from him too. And they end up pushing their powers into one another to cancel each other out. It's this sort of symbiosis that they have with one another. Somehow this gets rid of the powers of the taint from the drug in Bobby and Rain, or at least nominally does. And the kids invite Cloak and Dagger to come with them to Xavier's and Cloak and Dagger say, Dagger and I still have much to learn about our powers and ourselves. We must do so together and alone. Really, Cloak? Well, no, to be fair, I mean, Professor Xavier, he, he's busy right now. He's training Team America. That is true. I mean, I'm imagining them showing up and him being like, you know, sorry, at-risk teens. I would love to help, but there are, just, there are these five motorcycle guys with the power to create another motorcycle guy, and that power cannot go uncontained. So that's pretty much how the issue resolves. You know, Bobby and Rain have been infected with this Cloak and Dagger-esque drug. Cloak and Dagger have gone off to do their Cloak and Dagger thing, and everything's fine. Now, what we've seen since then on and off in New Mutants is that everything's not quite fine. Bobby and Rain are both still really shaken by this, and it's pretty heavily insinuated in earlier arcs that they've maybe got some vestiges of Cloak and Dagger's powers left in them. Yeah, there, there are a few mentions here and there. It's never focal, but Claremont has been careful to keep this as sort of a running background uh, plot element. So, going back to New Mutants 22, Rain's fairy tale wraps up with the Princess Alistrea attacking the Black Baron and the Sorceress and mauling them and ripping their throats out. And we next see her at the mansion later that night, curled up with a necklace, a pendant wrapped around her hand that I believe we last saw on Dagger. Yeah, Cloak and Dagger have these sort of medallions that are parts of their costumes. So let's talk about the cover of New Mutants 23. Oh man, it's very demon bear, and I say that only in the best sense. You know... I think it might be too Demon Bear, because here's the thing. Bobby is going to develop a sort of creepy shadow form that echoes cloaks over the course of this and the next issue. And in that form, he looks confusingly similar to the Demon Bear, and nowhere more so than on the number 23 cover. I mean, literally, looking at this, this is the Demon Bear. I would not read this as anything other than the Demon Bear had I been reading New Mutants as it was coming out. I think in context, knowing what really is going on, it does work, though, simply because it calls back to that level 
of chaos and rage that the demon bear embodied. And that really, those really are the traits that are coming forth as Bobby is losing control of his powers as this whole cloak power manifestation is occurring. So that parallel brings up a question for me, and that is why Rain and Bobby? Okay, so superficially, there's a really easy, if slightly uncomfortable answer, which is that as far as who's going to become cloak, well, there is one black male member of the New Mutants. And as far as who's going to become dagger, there is one white female member of the New Mutants. Well, there's also really? Amara Aquila, but she wasn't around. No, she wasn't there at that point. So it would. So you really think it was just like demographic matching? I mean, I think that may have been part of it. Another that's part. That's weird. Another part may have just been that this sort of transformative state that Rain and Bobby go into. You could parallel Bobby's sunspot form with Cloak's shadow form. And Rain, well, she transforms. Obviously, her wolf form doesn't look anything like Dagger, but there is a transformation. So that well, could be part of it, Well, and she's someone who struggles a lot with her self-image. And I will say, thematically speaking, Rain works very, very well in that regard. I think in this story, Bobby, not so much. But we'll get to I that. agree. There's actually character who makes way more sense thematically as Cloak among the new mutants, and that's Danny Moonstar. I could see the decision not to make her Cloak if this were just coming straight out of the Demon Bear saga, if it weren't rooted in that Marvel team-up. But man, I really wish that they had gone that direction because I feel like it's much more fertile ground. She and Rain already have that really intense rapport that, again, does kind of reflect Cloak and Daggers. And she's already got those demons and those extra-dimensional ties. Unfortunately, New Mutants having been such a new book when the Marvel team-up issue happened, all the context you're describing, it just wasn't there yet. So Daniel Moonstar is not infected with Cloak. In fact, Bobby DaCosta is, and he has gone off to Harry's hideaway. Yeah, he's just sort of hanging out there while Colossus is playing chess with Harry. So he goes to check in on Sunspot, who decks him, goes into this slightly off version of his Sunspot form, and proceeds to wreck the bar. And to Colossus, and to the other characters who see him, it looks like Bobby's powers are just going out of control, like he's just in an exaggerated version of his Sunspot form. What the readers see, and what Bobby notices, sort of in the background of this, is he's manifesting these weird demonic claws. He's getting little vestiges, again, of Cloak's power. One distress call later, Sam and Danny are on their way to Harry's hideaway. And man, New Mutants at this point is so much the Sam and Danny show. It really is. I mean, we've mentioned before, or I've mentioned at least, that their friendship is one of my favorites in the entire X-Men universe, and that that definitely remains the case You know, I'm going to say in comics... Yeah. And so when they're getting ready, Sam stumbles in on Danny getting dressed and is all sheepish and embarrassed. She's all, next time you better knock. Yeah, right. Uh Uh-huh. Will do. You know, you're awful cute when you blush. Thanks a lot. Actually, you're awful cute, period. Don't fun with me, girl. Wouldn't dream of it. Yeah, their banter back and forth is charming as hell. Oh, God, yeah. They're just, they're the best. We then cut away to what you described as the C-plot. And I I should point out that the uh, B-plot with the Hellfire Club and the C-plot, which is with Magneto and Lee Forrester, they actually play out over a number of little instances, but we're just going to talk about them each as one unit, because otherwise we're going to be immensely scattered. Yeah, there's no point in really going between them. And as you may recall from several episodes ago, in New Mutants 21, when Warlock was falling to Earth, he knocked Asteroid M out of the sky, and Magneto landed in the ocean and was subsequently rescued by total badass ship captain Lee Forrester. Rescued by a shark, because if we've learned two things about the Marvel Universe, it's that Canada is terrifying and you can't go anywhere in the ocean without being attacked by sea life. I think you mean rescued from a shark. 
What did I say? You said rescued by a shark. That is a better story, and I would like to see that instead. But unfortunately, yes, you're right. Rescued from a shark by Lee Forrester. Oh, man, that would be so great, though. Do you think Lee Forrester has shark friends? I bet she does. She's that hardcore. I think she is. As a reminder, this is a woman that Cyclops was briefly in a relationship with when he was mourning the death of Jean. But right now, Lee and Magneto are hanging out on Octopusheim, which, as you may recall, is Magneto's former sort of Atlantean Cthulhu-esque looking base that he had for some reason. Which Lee has basically just taken over while he's been gone because, you know, she's got a ship, she knows where it is, and as far as I can tell, she's just been hanging out there using it basically as a vacation home, doing some exploring, occasionally, like, dressing up in clothing she finds there. That brings me to something I want to point out. So, uh, at one point, Magneto sees her, and she's wearing this very pretty green dress that she said she found. It's like the roughly high-neck generic 80s dress that every female comics character wears when they're being dressed during that era. Yeah, but the last time we saw someone get dressed on Octopusheim, which was when Lee Forrester and Cyclops washed up there, and I'm just saying Cyclops was wearing a tunic mostly made of a metal octopus, and I feel like if you see that, and then you go and find yourself a generic green dress, you are clearly doing something wrong. To be fair, though, the the clothes that Lee and Cyclops were wearing on Octopus Time before were specifically clothes that Magneto had given them to fuck with them. Is still, if they didn't recognize the inherent awesomeness of the Octo tunic, then something's wrong. The grandeur, the, the quiet cephalopod dignity. <laughs> Have you heard of my new band, Quiet Cephalopod Dignity? Well, they're very quiet. That's true, it's probably not. Dignified, though. Yeah. Anyway, so Magneto is initially very resistant to Lee's help, you know, saying, Away, girl, I need no help, especially from a human as he hits her with a magnetic blast he later apologizes i don't know it's, it, again we're starting to see this softer side of magneto come out the same way we were talking about with god loves man kills the same way we've seen you know with many of his recent appearances have i mentioned my new band softer side of magneto and now a softer side of magneto we're actually surf rock yeah it's kind of a weird name so that's the other little bit that's running through this story amid all the cloak and dagger and new mutant stuff Now, I'm surprised in talking about this that you haven't brought up the thing that you mentioned, I think, more than anything else when we were talking about this arc, and that is Magneto's hair. It's sort of a mix between Wolverine and Beast, but very clean cut. It's M-shaped. He's got M hair. I I will say that this is sort of my definitive Magneto, and we'll see a lot more of him. He becomes a much more major character in New Mutants in the future. He's actually going to be headmaster of the school for quite a while. You know, I actually wonder if that's why this particular B-plot is in New Mutants, because they're seeding earlier on sort of Magneto as sympathetic. Yeah, that, that works for me. I am not as fond of his hair. And that is because to me, it looks incredibly Quicksilver to a point that if I were just glancing at the page, I would assume that I was looking at Quicksilver. Well, and maybe that was deliberate given the family connection between the two, even if it did just get recently retconned. I want to address this briefly. We've had a number of listeners write in to ask us our thoughts about this. And my thoughts about this is that the parentage of the Maximoff kids has been retconned so many times that I literally am completely incapable of caring about it anymore. I think that's kind of reasonable. You know, they've still been raised by the same people. They still have the same powers. Their family is still incredibly convoluted. Wanda still has her weirdo imaginary kids. Whatever. Just go on with life. Assume it's going to be retcons again in five years. Especially if film rights change hands once again. Right? Just, (laughs) yeah. There is a comic strip called Waiting for the Tea that is fantastic and goes into this at length. They're going to explain it better than we can or want to. (laughs) <laughs> yes, read it indeed. anyway actually because it's amazing it's really funny mm-hmm. but uh waiting for the tea maximoffs and lengers aside meanwhile back with the new mutants at stately xavier manor bobby and peter have been brought back to the infirmary and they're actually both comatose xavier and moira are trying to figure out what's going on there is a mysterious phone call that danny picks up we don't know who's on the other end but presumably it's rainer has something to do with her because danny's first response is to run to rain's room and discover that her bed has not been slept in now she thinks she knows where rain is because they have a psychic link 
Because of this, Sam and Danny fly over to a posh hotel not too far away. Initially, the concierge turns his nose up at these two random kids until Danny uses her powers in a way we haven't seen before, which is to pull a desire out of his head, which is, in this case, the desire for the ideal hotel guests. And so they all of a sudden look very posh themselves. What that brings up is that Danny's powers, I think of as very much parallel to sort of early Magneto powers. They're kind of sonic screwdriver powers. Well, they're eventually resolved into basically her being able to pull any kind of strong emotionally resonant image out of somebody's mind. And that makes a little more sense then. But yeah, you're right. Right now they're kind of vague. They end up heading upstairs after getting an image of a beautiful redheaded woman from the concierge's mind as well, and finding a very scared Rain Sinclair in fancy clothing that's too big for her, not knowing how she got there. Now, it also turns out Danny has had a dream about this, that she specifically dreamed everything that's happened to Rain, which again, those powers... They take Rain back home, put her to bed, and Danny discovers the pendant and recognizes it and asks Rain if she can borrow it and heads to the kitchen where Sam has just opened a newspaper with an article about two youths who were attacked violently by a wolf in New York the previous night. Bom, bom, bom. Unsurprisingly, those people are, in fact, Tandy and Tyrone, cloak and dagger. And, you know, it's never actually specified what happened to them. What's heavily implied is that Rain, in the end of her fairy tale, actually ended up going to New York and mauling them. In her sleep, effectively. Yeah. Basically, the uh, the taint of the drug from Marvel Team-Up, when she and Bobby were injected, is still, in fact, there, latent, and is starting to manifest again. Now, Danny goes and tracks them down in the hospital they're in in New York, and their, their injuries have all healed, but their powers are gone. And she asks them to help, because obviously Rain and Bobby are super screwed up, and they're like, no, no absolutely not. We're done with this. We didn't choose this life. We're really glad to be shut of it. Please just leave us the hell alone. Meanwhile, however, Bobby has lost control. Yeah, he's woken up in the room, the infirmary where he was previously comatose and gone into, so he was in his like creepy-ish sunspot form before, and now it is a thousand times worse. He has become monstrous. He's become just this shadow full of eyes and teeth and claws, very demon bear-like. Yeah, he's the bag of holding without the bag, and he fully absorbs Colossus, and Colossus is just gone. And yeah, as this fight is happening, we hear him kind of talk as Xavier's trying to talk him down. I hunger like I've been hollow inside from the day I was born. I'm dark and empty and cold, and only light takes the pain away. But when I reach for it, it slips through my fingers. There's no me anymore, Moira, and without the light, there will never be ever again. So we've talked about how Cloak and Dagger, their comic, doesn't always really get across how good the concept is. And this this arc of New Mutants really, really does. Just that terror and that tragedy comes through full force here. And Rain appears at this point. She heads downstairs. And she is she's once again this tall woman with just like long flowing hair who's becoming this almost elemental glowing form. Her radiance fills the room and the shadow flees before it. Again, Moira feels tears on her cheeks, but these she knows are of a sublime, innocent joy. Rain was always lovely, but the shy young Highlander never believed it. This, though, is her promise fulfilled and more, almost an angel come to Earth. And this is kind of the fundamental duality of cloak and dagger, too, in a lot of ways. Like, it sucks being cloak in ways that it really doesn't suck to be dagger. Absolutely. But at the same time, they're sort of two sides of the same coin. They're sort of bound together. It's weird that what makes me care more about Cloak and Dagger is a comic in which they only feature sort of tangentially, but this really does. It was really this arc that made me like the characters as much as I do. Unfortunately for you, they immediately teleport away, leaving the rest of the New Mutants to figure out what the hell is going on. 
they come up with a pretty quick theory after going through a brief recap of what happened in Cloak and Dagger's origin and then that Marvel team-up issue. Which is frankly better than either. The drug is still in their blood and it's mutating and it's interacting with their mutations and basically don't do drugs, kids. Or don't get kidnapped by people who make you do drugs. Don't do fancy experimental forms of superpower mob heroin. And so at this point, everyone's mobilized, or at least everyone who's around, which is the remainder of the New Mutants, minus Amara, and plus Rogue. Tyrone and Tandy, meanwhile, have run away from the hospital. They are really scared that the New Mutants are going to track them down, and that they're going to be forced to become Cloak and Dagger again, or at least to be part of that world again. And they don't want that. They don't like being Cloak and Dagger. They don't like having to do that. They don't really like their powers, and they really don't like the fact that, at least for them, it keeps them isolated. But nonetheless, they do end up meeting back up with the New Mutants, at a church, uh, which is coincidentally run by the priest who's taking care of Karma's twin siblings, who we haven't seen in a long time. Who also happens to be Tandy's uncle, because apparently everyone in the Marvel Universe is related. Oh my god, do you think he... I bet he knows Peter Corbeau. Yeah, they went to college together, along with the Hulk. They played racquetball all the time. Peter Corbeau was the best at racquetball. Super Doctor Astronaut racquetball player Peter Corbeau. So they're trying to heal Bobby and Rain. They've tracked them down. Xavier's having a lot of trouble telepathically breaking through. So Danny says, hey, my powers are more emotional. Let me give it a shot. And that goes immensely poorly. Bobby freaks out and his sunspot demonic form starts to overwhelm the room and shroud it in this deep, inky, clawed darkness. I want to go back a step, though, because before that, there's kind of a great scene of Xavier giving Sam shit for being all punked out. We are a respectable school, not a collection of ragamuffins. It's like, shut up, Grandpa. What do you know? Because he's wearing this super cutout Lila Cheney shirt and jeans and, and Rogue is in the corner is like, love your shirt, Sam, and your lady Lila's music. Rogue is like the cool aunt. She's like your aunt who's not that much older than you and will like go out for beers with you. Exactly. And so, yes, as this as everything goes utterly to shit, Ilyana figures, all right, well, I got to do something. So she cuts through Danny with her soul sword, which can just cut through sort of enchantment-y stuff to break this weird connection that's formed and takes Rain and Bobby to Limbo, the hell dimension that she's in control of, to attempt to exercise them. Now, this might have worked with another pair of characters, but one of these two is a really really not into Limbo. She's terrified of this stuff because Ilyana's a demon sorceress and Limbo's a demon dimension and she pushes back as hard as she can. Yeah, so Rain's freak out maybe is what causes the spell to go wrong and Ilyana has to basically cancel it. Xavier is furious. He's like, hey, I had this under control. You don't just jump and do stuff like that without checking in with me. Well, he goes further than that, too. His lecture is actually a pretty great one. Such power as you, we all possess, carries with it the responsibility to behave with a maturity that is far beyond your years. That is neither fair nor easy, for you must grow up before your proper time, but it is perhaps the fundamental reality of your existence. And that's what should be the central premise of the Xavier School. Uh, yeah, and it certainly is the central premise of New Mutants. These kids really in way over their head just trying to figure out what they need to do. Speaking of kids way over their head, at this point, Tandy and Tyrone show up to help. They finally decide that they are actually going to do this. They're going to pitch in. They're going to help get these powers away because while they don't like the powers, the powers weren't actually killing them and they are killing Rain and Bobby. Tyrone especially is just, he just hates the idea of becoming Cloak again, of becoming this this like foul, corrupted creature, this almost psychic vampire. Come on, Tandy. Dagger's beautiful. All that's best in life rolled up into one person. It's different from me. You don't understand. You can't. Nobody can who ain't been there. What it's like feeling darkness growing inside you like a cancer and yourself becoming a slave to its awful hunger. Tandy, the more I used my powers, the more I wanted to. Like I'm some kind of junkie or vampire. 
And he's getting more and more freaked out at the prospect of becoming Cloak again, even though it means saving Bobby and Rain's life. And one of the things I really like here is that Xavier talks to him psychically. And, okay, so I know, Rachel, you you have some issues with Xavier, obviously. Well, as with a lot of characters... The comics through which you become initially most familiar with a character are largely the ones that define them for you. And the Xavier of New Mutants is in a lot of ways best Xavier. This is the Xavier who I would like Charles Xavier to be. He's not the one who we see in a lot of other series. But if this is your central and definitive Xavier, he's awesome. And I think that's part of why I overall like Charles Xavier a lot as a character. I I respect him and like him a whole lot is because New Mutants was one of the comics that I really, really was drawn to as a kid. And we see him, you know, telling Tyrone about his own experiences with his mutant powers manifesting, you know, dealing with his brother and his stepfather. I very nearly went mad before I learned to control my talent. There was so much hurt in our house in those days. All I could sense were dark and ugly things. How sad that our negative thoughts and emotions always seem to be stronger and more prevalent than the gentler aspects of our natures. We are creatures of passion, you see, which too often regrettably finds its expression in violence. I believed my psi talent was the most horrible curse imaginable. I would have given anything to get rid of it. But in time, I came to understand that it wasn't the ability that was causing such anguish. It was my fear of using it and of what it might show me. And this is exactly what Tyrone needs to hear. And in fact, Tyrone's stutter does go away, not permanently, but for a little bit. He calms down, the fear that's defined him for so long backs off a little, and it's it's kind of beautiful. At this point, Xavier comes up with a solution to this, which is convoluted as hell, but it basically involves them all going into limbo, Rogue absorbing Cloak and Dagger's powers while connected to Xavier, and then somehow rechanneling the back into Cloak and Dagger when Eliana casts the spell that she cast before unsuccessfully because they didn't have anywhere for the powers to go. Everything gets restored to its previous proper state. So Bobby and Rain are purged of this this energy that they weren't able to control. Cloak and Dagger are Cloak and Dagger again, and we see them in their outfits, that blue and black cloak that Tyrone wears, the sort of white leotard that Tandy wears. And after all of the chaos and lack of control, it's actually sort of comforting to see the cloak and dagger powers back in people who are able to wrap their brains around them. And that leaves cloak and dagger for a final moment of angst-ridden introspection. Do you think we make a difference, cloak, really? That is not important. You taught me that. You and Professor Xavier and his new mutants. What matters is that we make the effort. We try. And we'll keep on trying for as long as we are able. For better or worse, we are cloak and dagger. And this is what we do. It doesn't matter if racing never changes. What matters is if we let racing change us. Rachel, that's that speed racer. You don't climb into a T-180 to be a driver. You do it because you're driven. I think it's getting less relevant, Rachel. Or because you're kidnapped and injected with synthetic heroin and have superpowers. I mean, you're trying to bring it back, but but I don't know. Speed racer is always relevant, Miles. <laughs> always. Well, there you have it. That's that arc of uh, New Mutants, and I, I really enjoy that one. I mean, New Mutants often has guest stars. I kind of really dig them interacting with Cloak and Dagger. It's a weird pairing, but I think it works. Yeah, Cloak and Dagger are characters who I think significantly and consistently are at their best outside of their own titles because they are fundamentally kind of outsiders. They're created to be outsider characters who exist liminal, not only to society as a whole, but to superhero culture and to superheroes. It's hard to highlight that with a character who's at the center of a story. And so when they appear in things like this, or when they guest star in Runaways, I feel like they're kind of in their ideal form. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this story, they also benefit, as do every character in the story, from being drawn by Bilson Kevich. I mean, that just uplifts pretty much any character or concept in the world. And like most characters from Marvel, they're pretty confusing. And with that, I kind of want to go to reader questions. All right, let's do it. Okay, so Slipped in the Rain on Tumblr asks, as have a couple of other listeners, what's the deal with Cloak and Dagger? I've recently started reading some old series with them, and I like the team. It seems like they're mutants, but Wiki is telling me 
that they're not. What's up? So early on, uh, they were in fact thought of as mutants whose powers were awakened due to trauma. And we've seen that before with some characters like Polaris or the third Thunderbird, Neil Shara, where it took some kind of inciting event for their already existing but dormant mutant powers to manifest. So that seemed like it was a legit explanation. It certainly helped sales for the book because the X-Men were selling like crazy. And it would also explain why they survived that synthetic heroin that none of the other experimentees did. In fact, for a while, their comic was actually called The Mutant Misadventures of Cloak and Dagger. Later on, though, that was kind of retconned. Um, when they're in the Utopia arc, when they're showing up, when Norman Osborn is trying to recruit them to his team of Dark X-Men, they object, saying, hey, we're not mutants, basically contradicting that. And in fact, everyone's favorite super doctor of questionable connection to reality, Dr. Nemesis, does test them out and confirm that, no, they are not mutants. Their powers do come completely from that drug. And, well, okay, technically their powers come from the demonic figure Despair and Cloak's cloak form is kind of his dark form. What? But that's just getting too complicated. What? Anyway, um, the short version is, in current continuity, unless they've changed it again since last time I checked, they are not, in fact, mutants. They just have a long history of associating with mutants. So, another question. Um, An anonymous listener on Tumblr asks, My girlfriend loves the X-Men, and I would really love to get her an original page from a more recent X-Comic. What's the best way to go about doing that? Are they really expensive? In general, with comics pages, you can expect to pay more based on content and based on intricacy. So, for example, if you've got a page that's a big splash of important characters who everyone loves, it's going to be more expensive than a page that's basically like a quiet background scene. As for how to buy them, how much you pay for a page is going to vary tremendously, depending on the artist, depending on the comic, depending again on the content, and depending on where you get it. For example, buying comics at conventions, you can sometimes get a pretty significant discount if you're paying cash for them. What I would suggest starting by doing is Googling the name of the artist, and I would try the name of the inker too, because generally what happens when there's different penciler and inker is they split up the originals. You can usually buy originals through either the penciler or the inker or whoever represents them. So search for, say, uh, Chris Anka Originals or Chris Anka Comics Pages. The other thing you can do at this point, and honestly, the internet makes this so easy, is just contact creators directly. Tweet at them, say, where can I buy your originals? Do a little bit of due diligent research first, like check their websites. A lot of creators have links to their online stores or places where they sell art. But yeah, if it comes down to it, just shoot them an email or tweet at them and ask where you can buy their work. And with that, I believe we are out of time this week. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is, as always, recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by the excellent Bobby Roberts, who is the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website, rachelandmiles.com. Also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, and much, much more. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and it's made possible by our awesome Patreon supporters. Guys, thank you so much, as always. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website. We'll be back next week with writer G. Willow Wilson talking about her current run on X-Men. See you then. (laughs) 